you may be seated. My name is Jim McDonald. I'm one of the elders here. It's my privilege to have a chance to share God's word with you today. So let me invite you to turn to John chapter 1, which you'll find on page 833 of your Pew Bible. I think that's going to be broadcast behind me uh, as I read the first 14 verses. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me, let me ask you to pray with me, and then we'll jump into the message of the morning. God, we're grateful for your presence here. We're thankful for the significance of the event that brings us to this place at this time. And we pray that as we consider the incarnation and all that it implies for our lives, that you would speak deeply to us, that we would be challenged to have a fresh look at this regular festival that we celebrate at this time of year with eyes that are aware and alert to the things that you would have us to learn. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the day after Thanksgiving, uh, my wife Joyce and I went down to see our granddaughters in North Reading to help them put up their Christmas decorations. Sadie is now eight and Nora is six, and they were engaged in a very animated discussion, uh, a, more or less a debate, about where to put a particular Christmas decoration. Each child had, was holding on to an object that depicted something rather Christmassy. Sadie, in particular, was holding sort of, sort of a wooden structure, and it was sort of a manger scene. And Nora had something that was a little less, little sort of, just sort of a Christmas star kind of thing, and they were debating about where on the table they would put their items. And as the discussion continued, Sadie, the eight-year-old, finally in her frustrated big sister voice said, Nora, we have to put this major scene where I say it's going to go because this is the main event. This is what we're waiting for. Now, at the time, I was mildly amused by this exchange, but the more that I thought about it, the more I realized that phrase is going to preach. Because this morning, this is the main event. That's why we're here. We're marking the culmination of the Advent season as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. This unique child born that holy night would one day resolve the fundamental problem facing humankind, the problem of sin. 
The incarnation of the Son of God literally changes everything. And this morning I want to look at two ways that the birth of Jesus at a specific place and a specific time is truly the main event. But before I get there, I need to take a detour. And I'm going to try to stick to my script because those of you who know me know that if I get off the script, who knows where it could go, right? So I'm going to try and stay to the script. But I think this detour is important because I want to set the context for why this is such a significant event. You know, it's never been easy to pass down the truth of God's word from one generation to the next. This is especially true today when the values that are espoused by the world seem upside down, frankly, to the values that the Christian faith articulates. The things that were wrong when I was young are now fine. The things that I grew up in believing firmly are sort of condemned, or they're, out, they're, they're not acceptable anymore. It's kind of a weird phenomena to sort of live through a time when that's the case. But this challenge has always been true. This is not unique to 21st century America. I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 6, where God lays down for the Israelites the importance of transmitting the truth to the next generation. I think I've got that one too. Do I have a slide on Deuteronomy 6? Yes, I do. Read along here with me and see what God has to say about this. This is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give it to you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you are eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It's the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall, in be, you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst as a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Now we all know the story. We're sitting here because we're Bible people. And we know that this admonition was given in conjunction with two basic rules of what the Israelites were supposed to do or not do when they entered the promised land. And we all know the story. They did precisely what they were not supposed to do. And as a result of that, calamity after calamity beset the people. Now, do you think that was because the parents refused to teach the children these precepts that God had set down? Maybe for a few of them. I don't think that was what was going on. I think that the people of the land infiltrated the people of, the, of God. And the people of the land laid ideas on them and gave them concepts and understandings and con constructs 
of the way that they should live, which was contrary to the way of God. And as time went on, those people developed a worldly mind, the mind of the people of the land, rather than the mind of the living God. And that's what happened. And the result of that was disaster. After disaster. After disaster. They did not intentionally cultivate a godly mind, and the result was calamity. Now, as most of you know, I'm an educator by training and by profession. And one of my great concerns is that the Church of Jesus Christ and all of its para-organizations, whether they be Christian schools or ministries or whatever, are not doing an adequate job of preparing our young people for the world of ideas. We tend to be reactionary, dare I say it, fearful of engaging with the world and its thinkers. Rather than engagement, we practice avoidance. Rather than helping students and members of congregations undertake the hard work of, de of developing and cultivating a Christian mind, we default to giving simplistic answers and formulas to complex situations and questions, and we pray that that will be enough. Now, that may ease our conscience, and it allows us to say that we're preparing our students to face the world, but of course, we know that's not true. Study after study shows that too many Christian young people abandon their faith when they get to college. And why is that? Is that because they were never taught? No. But they have not cultivated a Christian mind. And so they're at a loss. They don't know how to address the world's situations and the world's dynamics and the way that the world functions. And so they find themselves cowering in fear rather than thriving as they understand how to interpret the, the world around about them. To our credit at Byfield, it's not a success yet, but once a month we have hot topics tonight for our young people where they start to explore in depth the harder questions of life. We don't intend to give them the answers because we want them to think. We want to force them into that position of, of being uncomfortable here in a safe place so that when they're in the real world, they're prepared and they're ready to engage. Far too many students cannot engage in an argument with a person who's radically different from them. They've never been forced to think through the assumptions and philosophical underpinnings of a controversial topic. And I think in our effort to shield our students, we have failed to prepare them for the arguments of a worldview that stands in opposition to the truth of God. <clears throat> More than that, I don't think most of us are really willing to enter into those kind of dialogues. Either because we're afraid, or because to do so, we're going to find people that disagree with us, and that may make us unpopular, or controversial in our neighborhoods, or not loved, or fill in the blank. Our default is to say nothing, while the questions that we don't even want to think about flood in and attack your children, and your grandchildren, that you love, and that you care about. Let me push this a step further. Is it possible that we're really not so different from ancient Israel in this regard? Are we so saturated by the world that we have subtly and unwittingly embraced a worldly mind? Is it possible that by not intentionally cultivating a Christian mind 
that we are compromising the truth of our faith such that we begin to look more and more like the world with attitudes and beliefs that are not materially different from those who don't know Christ. Have we forgotten the Christ who saved us? Now there's another part of this challenge of passing on the from one generation to the next the truth of Christian life. And that's the nature of the world in which we find ourselves. We live in a soundbite world, don't we? The concept of giving somebody time to present a reasoned argument is no more. Shortened attention spans mean that when we have to work hard mentally to track with an argument, we tune it out. And so what do we default to? We default to our feelings. Well, I feel this way about that. So I say to eighth graders at the beginning of every year, I don't care about your feelings. Your feelings aren't going to carry any weight in the world. You need convictions. You need to know what you believe, and you need to know why you believe what you believe. And the only way you cultivate that is by hard work and thinking and cultivating a Christian mind. And that, my friends, is the task of the church. Now, some of you are sitting here this morning and you're saying to yourself, what does this rant have to do with Christmas? <laughs> and I kind of feel for you, because like, as I was preparing this, I'm like, I don't know if this is going to connect, but I'm going to try and walk, I'm going to land the plane, I promise. At the end, I'm going to land the plane. What I want to do here in the next few minutes is I want to try and model for you how a foundational doctrine of the Christian faith, the incarnation, stands in opposition to the presuppositions and underlying assumptions of the world in which we live. And I dare to hope that this will help us to begin to see ways that we can look critically at the assumptions our world makes about things and how it might be a more healthy way to think about these things if we have the mind of Christ. That's a lofty ambition, and it may be an utter failure. And so I'm a little nervous. But I'm going to speak it with conviction either way. In my opinion, the incarnation of Jesus Christ explodes a bomb under some of the unspoken assumptions of our modern world. Our world operates with particular prejudices that govern our understanding of what ultimate reality must be like. We accept these presuppositions blindly without ever challenging the premises on which they're made. Whether stated publicly or intentionally or not, there are certain underlying assumptions of what makes things real. And if we don't challenge those things, those assumptions serve to reduce the earth-shaking importance of Christmas. And we're left with an elf on the shelf. Or a boy who's left home alone. Or a Grinch. And that's what we've got. What we really have is the invasion of planet Earth by the sovereign God who rules over space and time from eternity past to the end of days. That's what we're here to talk about this morning. That's what the incarnation is about. When scripture says in John 1 that the word became flesh, everything changed. I mean everything changed. At its very foundation, at its very essence, at the very origin of the way that we think about things, everything has changed because Jesus has come. 
That's why we're here this morning. But that's not what our world thinks. Here are four presuppositions. I won't have time to go into them all. I'm going to only do one. Here are four presuppositions that really inform the way that the world thinks about Christmas. First, our understanding of ultimate reality must be ahistorical. It must be equally valid for all time and not tied to any particular historical moment or place. Second, our understanding of ultimate reality must be universal. It cannot be allied to any particular culture. All cultures are equal. Third, our understanding of ultimate reality needs to be abstract. It's theoretical. It's about what there is, not what in fact there is. Fourth, our understanding of ultimate reality must be impersonal. Its abstract purity cannot be polluted by any human prejudices or understandings. Now, as you can imagine, each of those assumptions is loaded. And each of those assumptions reserve, I mean, we can't unpack all of those things in this short amount of time. And so I'm, I'm going to try and do one of them today. Maybe over the next three years, I'll do one a, one a year for the, next, for the next four years. I, I don't know. It depends on how this one goes. But, but, but seriously, this is, this is what we want to do here. The story of these assumptions is really long, and, and it's very philosophical, and it's deadly dull. And I'm not going to give you that. Because you'd be, I, I always say to kids, I don't worry from the first two kids start to sleep. But when the third one drops off, I know I've lost you. I could see if I went through the philosophical underpinnings of all this, there'd be a lot of people that'd be dozing off. So you'll have to tr just trust me. These assumptions are nothing new. So I'm going to suggest this morning that the incarnation as presented in the Bible doesn't just blow off those assumptions, right? That would be, that would be a cowardly way out. No, God's word actually engages these assumptions, challenges them head on, and then renders the audience having to deal with it. And that's what I want to look at here. Scripture rearranges things in a way that our modern sensibilities are challenged by the truth therein, wherein we take the time to think deeply about what is really at stake. So here's the first assumption, which is the one I'm going to go for today. Our understanding of ultimate reality must be ahistorical, equally valid for all time and not tied to any particular historical moment or place. Does that sound like the Bible to you? Sure doesn't sound like the Bible to me. The Bible doesn't claim that the incarnation is a symbol of an eternal relationship between God and his creation. The Bible doesn't create, doesn't suggest that the incarnation illustrates an unchanging reality. No. The Bible indicates that the incarnation is a unique, one-off event that took place at a particular moment in history in a particular place in time. Paul says in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. The Bible teaches that the incarnation is irreducibly historical. It's an actual event that actually happened at an actual place in time, and we can look back at it. And we can articulate it because we know it to be factually true. 
Jesus Christ is not some abstract, timeless reality. He has a birthday. Probably not tomorrow. But he has a birthday. He has a lineage. He's from a family. In short, the Jewish God that we worship expresses himself in time, and with the birth of Jesus, nothing will ever be the same again. The incarnation is something that happened. There was a moment in time when it began. It is historic. Now let me tell you what the world thinks about that. Let me quote, I hate quoting, anyway. Let me quote Friedrich Nietzsche, who you've all heard of, the famous atheist. This is what he says about the incarnation. It's very telling. Quote, the concept of son of man is not some concrete person belonging to history, someone individual or unique. He's an eternal facticity, a psychological symbol that has been redeemed from the concept of time. The kingdom of God announced by this incarnate Christ is not something that you wait for. It does not have a yesterday or a day after tomorrow. It will not arrive in a thousand years. It's an experience of the heart. It's everywhere and it's nowhere. End quote. What's Nietzsche saying? He's denying that the incarnation took place at a specific time in a specific place. Why? Because to do so takes away the impact and the power of the event. By making the birth of Jesus a psychological symbol, he seeks to neuter him, rendering this child in the manger a quaint anachronism, able to do nothing more than create a warm, fuzzy feeling in the hearts of simple-minded people. That's the world's view. That's not the Bible's view. Time and time again, philosophers who are not Christian and don't understand the faith, or choose not to understand the faith, whichever the case may be, reach conclusions to try to dehistoricize the reality of the Incarnation. Now, quite apart from philosophy, the history of the historicity of the Incarnation, as asserted in the Bible, is far from normal in other sacred texts or, religious, or religions. There are very few historical narrative, narratives that deal with actual religious movements. The Bible is the exception, not the norm. But the historical nature of the Bible's claims mean that we can ask legitimate questions of the text. We can ask the Bible about what time was it when Moses made the Exodus. We can date from other, uh, other sources outside of the Bible a date for that event. We know the time that David lived from extra-biblical sources. It's corroborated. We know that Augustus Caesar was the Caesar at the time of the birth of Jesus. We know that Quirinius was governor of Syria. For years, they couldn't find scholarship that substantiated Quirinius was a guy, and 30 years ago, they found such documentation. This is historical fact. This is not some mythology. Imagine trying to ask, when did Odin plant Thor's thunder tree? <laughs> or tell me exactly when Sisyphus started rolling that rock up the hill. Those are nonsense questions because those mythologies are nonsensical. They're not rooted in history. 
They're not rooted in reality as we know it. The fact of the Incarnation has huge implications for the developing of a Christian mind and outlook because it dignifies history. History is not some cycle of endlessly repeating events. It's not random chaos. History is meaningful and linear. Just like a road has a beginning and an end, history is headed someplace. If I use, if I use this building as a metaphor for time, history began there at that window in the front here. At the top is the heavens, and at the bottom is the earth. And those two points are going to come to here. The incarnation. And from here, they're going to go to that window, to the top and the bottom, to a new heaven and a new earth. That's what God's word is teaching us. That is way more satisfying, friends, than a psychological thing. And if you're willing to abandon the historicity of God's truth word as we find in the Incarnation, you miss out on the real meaning of Christmas. And I hope that's why you're here today. Now, at the risk of pivoting to the other extreme, biblical faith in the Incarnation does not overvalue history. It doesn't reduce everything to history either. Because history, the Incarnation dignifies history but it also talks about the fact that there are events outside of history that make history valid. And in this case, it's the incarnation. Because the word became flesh. And that word transcends history. And why does that matter? Because if the word doesn't transcend history, then all of history is equally valid or invalid. There's nothing by which to judge or evaluate the validity of the, state of the teaching. But if the word became flesh, which he did, in a manger in Bethlehem, then that implies that there are some things that matter more than others. And there is some standard by which we know what is true. And that standard by which we know that the truth is the word of God. And that standard is the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what happens today. And that's why we're here. The incarnation cuts across both unhealthy attitudes toward history. It doesn't exalt it, and it at the same time doesn't do the other, you know, put it at the other extreme. Rather, it cuts right across them and says history has a place, but mystery and incarnation have a greater place and give meaning and understanding to that which is before us. <clears throat> so the Christian view of reality rejects the tendency to find refuge in abstractions, of fleeing from history to the comfortable realm of the transcendent. Because if you get to do that, my friends, it's completely safe. Because you live in a world of ideas. And that's not where you live your life. You live your life in a world that's broken. You live your life in a world of pain. But you live your world in a life where redemption is real. 
and life change is possible. If history is all there is, and there's no measure of anything outside of it, then how will you judge whether or not something is, is exploitative? We live in a world where what I think is what I think, and it's my truth. And what you think is what you think, and it's your truth. And there's no arbiter of truth because there is no truth. The Incarnation says there's truth. Not only does the Incarnation say it, it insists on it. There must be truth because God has come down and God has become flesh. That's the introduction. <laughs> now I'm going to briefly do my two points. The first point is this. The Incarnation acts as that pinpoint focus to which all of time before it is drawn and from which all of time beyond it radiates out. Come back with me to my window and trace history with me. Biblical history. The heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The earth begins to move. And along about the third row, Judgment Day comes. Genesis 6 through 9. Humankind has become so evil and so corrupt as a result of the fall that God destroys it all and starts anew. Judgment Day comes. And in Genesis 10 and 11, we see the table of nations, and then we see a line that's going to form out of which God is going to choose for himself a chosen people. We have creation of heavens and earth. We have judgment. We have the cho God's cho chosen people. Now notice as God's chosen people come along through the book of Genesis, we have the story of Abraham and his call, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and on and on. Come to Moses. We're moving progressively along our pathway here. Do you notice how our, 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 our triangle is getting narrower as we approach the incarnation? We come along, and along about 2 Samuel chapter 7, we have this encounter with David. And all of a sudden we realize from 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God's chosen people is not just a people, it's actually a family. There's one line from which we're going to trace that. And we come along from 2 Samuel and we come along and we come along and we're getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And then we come to Isaiah. And we hear there's going to be a child that's going to be born. And we come to Micah. And we find out where that child is to be born. And we come to Malachi. And we find that the Son of God will suddenly appear in his temple. And then there's 400 years of silence. And then the light dawns. And all of that has narrowed down to this one focal point, this microphone before me, is the singularity, the point of singularity where God and history meet. At the Incarnation, the narrative begins with the heavens and the earth converging in a single baby. The philosopher Jacques Ellul says it this way, the difference between any work of art and a biblical narrative is the difference between a watch and a compass. In art, the driving force, the worth of the object is found within it. But in the biblical narrative, it's entirely dependent on the magnetic field outside of itself. As we move forward in time, Elul says, we go past the incarnation, we witness not a further constriction of time, but rather an explosion of time in the other direction. 
were it not for the Incarnation, the explosion of time as we know it would have a much different form. We have a window of 33 years in which the Son of God is born, lives among humankind, is, is crucified, dead, buried, and rises from the dead. And 50 days later, we have an event called Pentecost. And at Pentecost, God's people are now a new people. Instead of the chosen people, they are the church. And the truth of the, of the biblical narrative and the truth of life as we know it is that that church, that God's people, is going to continue to grow in complexity and size throughout all time. So at Pentecost, there's 120 people gathered in an upper room, fearful and terrified for their lives. And 2,000 years later, where that window comes down, there's 2 billion people across the earth that name Jesus Christ as Lord. That tiny pinprick has grown enormously in a window of 2,000 years. 2002, 200, 202 AD, there's a 22-year-old girl named Perpetua. She's had her first baby. She's from a wealthy family. But she comes to know faith in Jesus. And she's told she's going to die. And they take her child from her. And the child is starving, starving to death because the child is still nursing. And they give her back the child and they say to her, you can keep your child as long as you renounce your faith. And she gets fed to the lions. Do you do that for a psychological well feel, good feeling? In 404, a young man comes from the Iranian part of the, of the empire, to, wants to visit Rome. His name is Telemachus, or Telemachus. He arrives in Rome on January 1st, 404, and he hears crowds in the theater, in the Roman Colosseum, and they're enjoying themselves. So he wonders what's going on. He goes in, and there's a gladiatorial combat going on with people that are killing one another in the arena. He's shocked, he's dismayed, and he's stunned by that. He jumps out of his seat and rushes into the middle of the auditorium, uh, the middle of the Colosseum, and calls out to the people, stop, this is barbaric, you can't do this. You're civilized human beings, you cannot do this. And they start to pelt him with stones. And one of the gladiators strikes him down. And the gladiatorial games stopped that day. Never again. Why? An innocent man died for what he believed to be true. Is that a psychological well-being? That's because of the incarnation. I could go on. I can give you example after example. The blood of the martyrs, the seed of the church. 404, Augustine says this, the martyrs were bound, imprisoned, scourged, racked, burnt, rent, butchered, and they multiplied. Does that sound like some brain game? Doesn't to me. 1099, the church splits. 
I don't need to go into the theology. It splits. It continues to grow. 12th century, universities get established by the church. 8th century, churches establish hospitals. 1st century, the church outlaws the Roman rule that said that a man could take a stick, the, width of his, the thickness of his thumb, and beat his wife. And the church said no more. Because women have value in the sight of God. Does that sound to you like a psychological thing? Or is that predicated on an understanding of history that runs deep in their soul? I think I have a slide. Am I going to slide? <clears throat> I don't know if you can see this. But this is a graphic depiction of what I've been trying to say to you this morning. And I want you to notice the centerpiece of that is the birth of Jesus. Now, I can't tell you how close we are to the new heavens and the new earth. There are days where I'm sure you, like me, say, Lord, come soon. But I've given you the examples I've given you to say this. God's plan for you does not promise you rainbows and unicorns and sunshines. But God's plan for you guarantees you that because Christ has come, because the word became flesh and dwelt among us, you have security no matter what comes your way. And so you don't need to be afraid because greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Now, if I, I got to do this, sorry. In literary terms, what I have just outlined for you and what that picture shows is called a chiastic structure. It's an X shape, right? You've got these things narrowing down to this point and then exploding out again, okay? The point where the, where the literary elements meet, that is the birth of Jesus, that's the main point. That's the main point. And that's why we're here. The point, the main point, the birth of Jesus is the point where the breadth and the depth and the love of God is manifest to humankind in a way that had never happened before and will likely never happen again. Will never happen again until Jesus comes. It's the point where all history turns on that point. And that leads me to my final point. The incarnation is the one event that splits time in two. Because of the incarnation, time is no mere moment in a predictable succession of events. There is a before and there's an after. We always used to call it B.C. and A.D. Before Christ and the year of our Lord. And what was the pivot point? That would be the incarnation. We don't use that kind of language anymore. It's not inclusive enough. So now we say before common era and common era. Ask the teacher, what's the point where it changes? It's still the advent of Jesus. You can 
try to take Jesus out, but you can't get rid of him. He is the main point. Of all the biblical events that irreparably alter the course of history and create an indelible before and after, the incarnation is perhaps the one that has left the deepest mark on modern culture. Our calendars are, around, are based around it. Our lives are based around it. Our seasons are based around it. Our festivals are based around it. It's all about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It captures the mind of people. Even people that don't know him are captured by the mind of Christ at this point in the, in the, at this time of year. When you have this juxtaposition of divine, divinity and infant melded together in the manger. Now, I, I'm going I'm to finish by reading a story, a very short story. It's by J.B. Phillips. And it's called the, the Angel's Point of View. And it's a Phillips meditation on what I've been talking about this morning. And it's, he bases it on John 1, verses 4 and 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He bases it on 1 Peter chapter 1, where he talks about the angels seeking for the one who is to come, and so on. But let me read you this story, and then I'll make two final remarks, and we'll be done. Once upon a time, a very young angel was being shown around the splendors and glories of the universes by a senior and more experienced angel. To tell the truth, the little angel was beginning to be tired and a little bit bored. He'd been shown whirling galaxies and blazing suns that were more massive than his mind could even understand. And his mind, the extent of the universe, was more amazing than he could comprehend. Finally, he was shown the galaxy in which our planetary system is but a small part. As the two of them drew near to the star, which we call our sun, and to its circling planets, the senior angel pointed out a small and rather insignificant sphere turning slowly on its axis. It looked as dull and as dirty as a tennis ball to the little angel, whose mind was filled with the size and glory of what he had seen to date. I want you to watch that one particularly, said the senior angel, pointing with his finger. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's special about that one? That, replied his senior solemnly, is the visited planet. Visited, said the little one. You don't mean visited by, yeah, indeed I do. That ball, which I have no doubt looks to you small and insignificant and not perhaps over clean, has been visited by our Prince of Glory. At these words, he bowed his head reverently. The little angel's face wrinkled up in disgust. Do you mean to tell me, he said, that he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures of that floating ball? I do. And I don't think he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. 
little angel looked blank. Such a thought was beyond his comprehension. Close your eyes for a moment, said the senior angel, and we'll go back in what they call time. While the little angel's eyes were closed and the two of them moved nearer to the spinning ball, it stopped spinning, spun backward quite fast for a while, and then slowly returned to its usual rotation. Now look. And as the little angel did as he was told, there appeared here and there on the dull surface of the globe little flashes of light, some merely momentary and some persisting for quite a time. What am I seeing now, asked the little angel. You're watching this little world as it was some thousands of years ago, returned his companion. Every flash and glow of light that you see is something of the Father's knowledge and wisdom breaking into the minds and hearts of people who live upon the earth. Not many people you see can hear his voice or understand what he says, even though he is speaking gently and quietly to all of them, all of the time. Why are they so blind and deaf and stupid, said the little angel. It's not for us to judge them. We who live in the splendor have no idea what it is to live in the dark. But watch. For a moment you will see something truly wonderful. The earth went on turning and circling around the sun, and then quite suddenly, in the upper half of the globe, there appeared a light, tiny, but so bright in its intensity that both angels were forced to hide their eyes. I think I can guess, said the little angel in a low voice. That was the visit, wasn't it? Yes, that was the visit. The light himself went down there and lived among them. Open your eyes now. The dazzling light has gone. The prince has returned to his home of light. But watch the earth now. As they looked, in place of the dazzling light, there was a bright light which throbbed and pulsated. And then as the earth turned many times, little points of light spread out. A few flickered and died, but for the most part, the lights burned steadily. And as they continued to watch, in many parts of the globe, there was a glow. Do you see what's happening? asked the senior angel. The bright glow is the company of loyal men and women he left behind. And with his help, they spread the glow. And now lights begin to shine all over the earth. Yes, yes, said the little angel impatiently. But how does it end? Will the little lights join up with one another? Will it all be light as it is in heaven? His senior shook his head. We simply don't know, he replied. The end is not yet. But now I'm sure you can see why this little ball is so important. He has visited it. Yes, I see. Though I don't understand, I shall never forget that this is the visited planet. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, <clears throat> we've come to the main event. The celebration of Christmas is the recognition that God has visited our space. It's not just some psychological symbol intended to placate the masses. 
The incarnate Son of God laid aside his divine prerogatives and condescended at the specific time in history to dwell among the people of God for a period of time, ultimately to take our sins and offer himself as a perfect sacrifice. Now, given the busyness of our lives, we tend to miss out on the absolutely earth-shattering reality that the incarnate Christ took up residence among us. Don't allow yourself to be lulled into thinking that this is just a quaint tradition. That's not what Christmas is about. The incarnation of Christ is worthy of defending. The truth of God's word is worthy of exploring. The cultivation of a Christian mind is imperative in our generation. All of time before the incarnation pointed to a singular historical event. And all of time from that point on is part of the ever-widening impact of the gospel message on the created order. Time as we know it will one day come to an end. But those who know and love Jesus Christ and have bent the knee to his position and authority will dwell in his presence forever. The celebration of Christmas. Truly the main event. Let's pray. Father God, when we... When we look at history and we see what people have endured for faith, we know in the very depth of our being that none of that is possible if the incarnation doesn't happen. We know that in your advent among us, in your willingness to take on human flesh and all of its limitations, you have set aside all that has been known and all that is expected and created an entirely new race of people who know and love you. Father, I pray that as we sit here this morning, we would recognize in a fresh way the imperative nature of the call that you have placed on our lives. Not because we owe you anything in particular except for our salvation, but because you have gifted us a chance to explore the depth and the height and the breadth and, the, and all, of the, all of the wonders of your majesty in their fullness. God, quicken us and quicken our hearts that we may celebrate in a right and worthy manner of your call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And we're going to sing.